Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the independent and independent voices, this is Double Take, a podcast in which we catch up with the writers of some of our favourite comment pieces. I'm your host, Kirsty Major. This week, we're joined by Will Gore, Deputy Managing Editor of the Independent and London Evening Standard. Will formerly worked in media regulation and will be discussing his piece on the coverage of the Finsbury Park terrorist attack and why the British public have lost so much confidence in the press. Here is Will to read his column, Let's Not Pigeonhole the Finsbury Park Attacker as an Oddball Loner, He May Well Have Been Part of Something Bigger. What does terrorism look like? In this country, we think perhaps first of bombs, of explosions that destroy buildings and lives, buses and tube carriages. We got used to bombs when the IRA was at its most active. After 7-7, we had to get to grips with the idea that explosives need not be planted, but could be detonated by a person willing to lose their own life in the act of taking others. In the last year, we've seen cruder acts of terror too. Cars and vans, hired specifically to kill, have been used to devastating effect. Attackers have run amok with knives. In every case, bodies have been strewn around, blood has spattered pavements, families and communities have been left grief-stricken. But what does a terrorist look like? 30 years ago, we would probably have imagined a white Irishman, maybe with his face partially covered by a balaclava. Today, in the UK, our first thought on hearing about a terror attack might be to envisage a Muslim, of Asian heritage perhaps, a beard. Every age has its own bogeymen, each different but conforming in equal measure to a stereotype. What then to make of the latest attack to hit Britain this year? After Westminster, Manchester and Borough Market, Finsbury Park is the latest venue to play host to apparent terrorism. Once again, a vehicle has been weaponized, seemingly driven with intent into a crowd of innocent people. And yet the driver, now under arrest, is a white British man. The victims of the latest tragedy had been attending prayers at the local mosque. Witnesses report that the man shouted, I want to kill all Muslims. As news of the horror broke, some reports raised the spectre of terror straight away. Others were more cautious about the nature of what had happened. A few voices expressed suspicion, misplaced it seems, that the media was deliberately avoiding the term because, while the scene might have resembled terrorism, the suspect didn't conform to our current vision of a terrorist. In fact, with the police confirming that they were treating the incident as a terror attack, media reports quickly followed suit. Yet, with a man in custody, there will be more challenges to come for journalists and commentators when legal proceedings seek to establish the facts of the case and the motivations of the driver. After every act of terror, 
we demand answers to the same old questions. What ideology drove the culprit? How was he, almost always he, radicalised? How could a person be so hate-filled that they would take innocent lives of people they knew nothing or little about? And for the most part, we prefer simple solutions. The IRA's aims, and the context of its establishment, we could more or less understand. Their methods were horrific, but broadly conventional. Islamist extremists, motivated by a twisted vision of religion, seem also to have a shared conviction in an armed struggle, albeit one which is framed as a clash of civilizations. Their links, real or imagined, to ISIS and other similar groups bolster the impression that they are part of something bigger than their own actions. But when it comes to terror attacks that sit outside such established narratives, we seem to struggle. Consider the murder last year of Joe Cox MP by Thomas Mayer, a politically motivated act, influenced by an obsession with Nazism and distaste for multiculturalism. Or Anders Breivik, the mass killer who had a hatred of immigrants, especially Muslims, and of the social democracy which had permitted Norwegian society to become something he detested. Or Pavlo Lapshin, convicted in 2013 following the murder of an elderly Muslim and the bombing of several mosques, who was a white supremacist. Without obvious connections between these men, and with no overarching group to which they all pledged fealty, the crimes they commit tend to be presented as one-offs. The men are often loners, oddballs who had struggles with mental health or difficult family backgrounds. Those descriptions may well be accurate, of course, just as they might in relation to many of those who ended up being labelled merely Islamists. After all, it is almost always a range of factors which lead a person to become a terrorist. We should always be reluctant to reach simplistic conclusions about why someone becomes a violent extremist. But equally, we must accept that there are dots to be joined between Mayer, Breivik and Lapshin, and perhaps the person who drove his van into a crowd of Muslims in Finsbury Park, just as there are between Islamists such as Salman Abedi, Kuram Butt and Michael Adabalaji. To confront ideologies of hate, we must first recognise them, whether they have developed from religious zeal or from nationalistic or racist creeds. And in the end, we must dismantle them all. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. 
That was Will Gore reading his piece, Let's not pigeonhole the Finsbury Park attacker as an oddball loner. He may well be part of something bigger. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. So the piece was published yesterday and this morning Britain woke up to a range of different front pages. And as you say in your piece, some were quick to raise the spectre of terror and very clearly call it terrorism. And then you had all the papers calling him a, a lone wolf attacker. I think it's the Times, the Times front page read, unemployed lone wolf attacker. Mm. Do, do you think it's true to say that there is a, a spectrum of how the media reports on terrorist incidents? I, mean, I think there definitely is a spectrum. Uh, I think the interesting thing about this particular attack is that because the police and the Prime Minister were both quite quick to publicly say that they were treating this as a terrorist incident, actually the media has fallen in line pretty unanimously. But nevertheless, there's still a degree of reluctance, perhaps in, in some areas, um, sort of go the, the whole hog as they might have done in, in other circumstances. So I think it, it, it certainly varies, although I think it's quite important that we don't get into this idea that on this occasion, you know, people are simply refusing to acknowledge this act for what it was. Because that is, that's definitely one conversation which is going on around it. And I know even scrolling down my own Facebook wall, there's a huge sense of distrust in how the media covers terrorist incidents which are perpetrated by, as you say, what we have come to expect post 9-11 um, what a terrorist does look like mm. and I, I mean this case is very different you know working in, in a newsroom myself you know that people we report we're reporting on this differently because he is going to face a criminal trial whereas when we've reported on incidents in the past where the suspect has been killed yeah. at, at, at the site of the incident the way we report is quite differently I think I mean that's definitely true and, and that's inevitable and I think that's entirely right because plainly you know, working in the media, you, you cannot risk prejudicing what will inevitably be a very serious and, and large-scale trial. Uh, and, you know, frankly, uh, to assume a person's guilt before it's been tested in front of a, a, a judge and a jury uh, is not something which I think the media should be doing. And, and as you say, in, in incidents where perpetrators have died in the course of uh, carrying out an attack, the, the circumstances are, are from a legal point of view, completely different. Um, and I think just as there's a danger of, um, you know, sort of mischaracterizing acts of terror or, or people's motivations for, for carrying out violent acts, I think it's also quite easy to mischaracterize specific news brands in this country and indeed the, the media as a whole. And, and, you know, you see that quite often, this, you know, particularly nowadays with the sort of the dreaded mainstream media which is just sort of thrown around willy-nilly as a sort of terrible insult you think well i mean what does that even mean it's a sort of it's it's ridiculous i wonder where that comes from though because it's you know it whether it's wrong or it's right it's here it's now part of public discourse i mean we're seeing it around grenfell tower a lot of people accusing the media of not reporting fatalities correctly when on, on the other side, we know that we can't report deaths until we officially know them from the police. There's, n there's no you know, denotice, there's no gag in the order. But people, people suspect that there is, and those suspicions are founded in, in something. I mean, do, do you know what it, where, where did it come from? I don't know. I mean, I think, I think some 
part of it is an inherent British cynicism, um, which is reflected in all sorts of things, funnily enough, not least the media itself. Um, I think part of it is a consequence of past experience and, and dismal experience. And, you know, there are numerous examples of it. I guess one of the best examples is Hillsborough, yeah. where, you know, quite plainly, this terrible disaster took place. And it then took you know, nearly 30 years for the truth to emerge about Hillsborough. And people will say, well, frankly, the media did not do a good enough job in exposing what actually happened there. Um, so why trust the media now? Um, so I think there's a bit of past experience. I think there's you know, a bit of uh, present critique in, in all this as well. And, and you know, as, as we've been discussing, people's concerns about what they would uh, dub the right-wing media in this country. Ultimately, I think the, the danger is that real problems and real misdeeds get overlooked because people are sort of desperately trying to find some sort of bigger conspiracy um, to attack. So I think there's, I understand where that narrative comes from, but I actually think it's, it's often unhelpful to the cause which you know, people who hold that narrative would probably want to espouse. And it sort of twists something in the relationship between people and sources of information. Really, if you want to enact change, you kind of you need to understand the real root cause of the problem or, or have a critique of it. Um, but if you trust a lot of your news outlets, where do you get that information from? And I, I, I have the same worry as you. I think when we say you look around Grenfell and people who quite quite rightly feel left behind by some publications, they might be people who, you know, live in a council house and have been on the dole and for years have seen themselves being plastered across front pages saying mm. that they're scum and they're skivers and then all of a sudden they feel that they, these papers are, are yet again not representing them. But then does that detract from who we really should be going after, who in this case is... a who knows who it is because it, it, the investigation's mm, ongoing, but mm. there are some very culpable people in this country right now. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that is absolutely right. So I think, you know, we basically have to ask the right questions of the right people, not the sort of the, the what we see as the bigger questions of, you know, bigger crooks in, in our imagination, because actually that isn't going to get to us to answers that we need or that are actually going to make any difference. So, yeah, I completely agree that there is a there's a real danger to that narrative, but equally, I think the onus has to be on the political class and on the media to convince people that the narrative is wrong, um, and to demonstrate that that actually we can be trusted. You know, we're not going to get stuff right every single moment of every single day, but we don't set out to cover stuff up. We don't set out to twist narratives about terrorism. And use of social media. I think one part of this conversation that we haven't gone to yet is yet you have, you know, your mainstream media, as it were. But now also you can totally bypass that. And th throughout um, these terror attacks in Grenfell, a lot of people have said, let's develop our own, let's share mm. our own news, let's share our own videos because we don't feel like our voices are being heard elsewhere. So we're going to use these platforms to share them. So now you have almost like two channels and those channels overlap. You know, people yeah. share news stories on social media but also social media has become its own publishing platform mm. 
They're brilliant because people can take control of conversations themselves. Um, they can report on what's going on themselves. Um, and they give people access to an incredible range of um, you know, mainstream uh, media outlets, um, or not so mainstream. Um, I mean, the slight pitfall is that you end up with so many voices and so many sources that all sound vaguely credible that it's very, very hard to work at actually what's right and what's wrong. A lot of what goes on behind the scenes and a lot of what your job is for the independent leading standard is to, you know, to, ha to, to make sure that we are reporting correctly and adhering to you know, ethics of the industry. And I, and I think you're right, when, when you use social media, there's no, there's no sort of um, paradigm to work within or standards to work against which means that sometimes we have to be a little bit slower in how we report because we can't just report the first thing we hear. It has to be you know, checked. Yeah. And, yeah. and sometimes, does that delay, do you think that delay causes a sense of suspicion? Yeah, I mean, possibly it does. And to some people, there is that sense of reliability once you've seen it on a, on a major platform. But you're right, possibly to others, they see something on Twitter and they don't see it in the media for a, for a period of time. And maybe they see it the next day and they think, oh, well, you know, clearly the media was sitting on this for X amount of time. What ulterior motive did they have? Well, as you say, the, the truth is, for the most part, um, either, you know, journalists didn't see that piece of information that, that someone else saw on Twitter, um, or more probably, they're actually working out, well, is that information right? Have you, have you seen the sort of the rise of social media and the rise or like the, a change in the way that readers interact with, say, the Independent and the Evening Standard? Because, you know, you, you speak to readers quite a lot about their complaints or their concerns. Um, I think there's, there's definitely um, a change in the sense that people feel, um, that perhaps they feel they've got more skin in the game, that, you know, they, they know a bit about what this industry really is like because they've seen it on social media and they've got involved with it on social media. I think that's how sometimes people think of it. Um, I mean, as we've just been saying, I'm not sure that necessarily matches up to reality always, but, but I think that's sometimes the perception. Um, and I guess perhaps it's made people more aware of what a range of... Um, sources is, is telling them, which, which broadly speaking is quite a good thing. Um, but what it means, for example, is that whereas 20 years ago someone would have simply read The Independent and that would have been it, and they might have watched the BBC News as well, um, now they're probably seeing 20 different accounts of a particular event on social media or possibly online. And so often they'll write to, to us and say, well, you know, I, I saw this on your website, and it didn't seem to be quite the same as on another website. So who's right? Your background is in press regulation. Do you think there's a place for more regulation of social media as well as the established form of media? Because surely if, it seems like social media is such a big part of this debate and, and has totally changed the landscape. Mm. And how do, we, how do we begin to grapple with that? How does the industry do it? I, I genuinely Sorry, I'm asking you to solve no, all of the no, media no, no, problems. It's, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly interesting question because, you know, it is a sort of major issue of our times. Um, my, for a long time, my intrinsic reaction to the idea of regulating social media was that, you know, 
don't be so ridiculous. Actually, you know, the great thing about social media is that it's the place where, you know, a thousand flowers bloom and, uh, you know, you can find anyone to agree with anything and isn't that jolly. Um, I guess, I mean, maybe this is a product of getting a bit older. I, I've started to become a little bit more anxious about the impact that it has on on people's everyday lives. And to that extent, I think in principle, there's a better argument perhaps now than there was, say, three or four years ago to a better, I'm not sure regulation, but better oversight of, of social media. There would have to be some sort of you know, appeals body or, uh, you know, I guess sort of an ipso equivalent for social media. But, I mean, again, I just think it, it is one of those things that in principle you think, well, that's probably a good idea. In practice, I, I struggle to see how you could make it work effectively without it, you know, becoming a sort of extraordinary monolith um, that would probably be a um, massively expensive, be highly inefficient, and see lead to all sorts of rows um, in relation to every judgment ever made. Well, thank you for joining us. You heard it here first that Will is going to be the uh, the founder of the the, the regulator <laughs> of social media in the UK. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Will. If you like the show, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Acast or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Double Take is produced by Helen Hoddenop. Holly Baxter is now the acting editor of Independent Voices as Hannah Fern has gone away on maternity leave. Congrats to both of you. I'm Kirsty Major. See you next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.